0: Welcome to Fireside Chats with Rev. Iron Kim, hosted by me, Abby, and produced by Grace Presbyterian Church of Silicon Valley. Iron, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Abby. How are you?
0: I'm doing okay. It's been a heavy couple of weeks, so I'm glad to be on this podcast and just get to process things with you today.
1: A lot to talk about and a lot to process, definitely for all of us, I think, just... uh the emotional weight of the past few weeks watching the protests, everything else going on. Yeah, it's been pretty hard.
0: Yeah, for our listeners, we at the Grace staff have been pretty busy the last couple of weeks just trying to think about ways that we can support racial conversations at Grace and that we can be talking about systemic injustice at church. We don't want it to just be a secular conversation. So that's one reason we're here today. What are we working towards today, Iron?
1: I think Instead of talking about racism and personal acts, let's focus on systemic corporate impact of racism in our society. What does the Bible have to say about it, if anything? That's what I want us to think about today.
0: Big topic, big topic. I've seen so many secular takes and secular articles on race. Many of them have been incredibly well thought out showed a remarkable degree of depth and consideration for the things going on in our society today. But I do want to have a space where I can tackle these topics from a uniquely Christian perspective. I think this is important for the church to be the church during a time like this.
1: Couldn't agree more, Abby.
0: Iron, I know from working with you that actually you talk about racial justice a lot more than people might expect. What is it about racial justice that gets you going? What in your life experiences has brought you to such fervor and passion on this topic?
1: You know, when we first moved from New York City to San Francisco, I showed up in San Francisco thinking this is the progressive city where race issues have been dealt with for so long. And you get to see a lot of it expressed in the community overall, whether it's Asian American police officers, bus drivers, and postal workers. You just get a sense that maybe this is going to be very different than the East Coast. But as I was living in San Francisco, we got to know some of our Chinese American neighbors who had been in this particular neighborhood since the mid-60s. And this one older couple told me they had moved out of Chinatown and moved to the house they were living in because until that time, a Chinese-American was not allowed to own a house outside of Chinatown. It was illegal. And it utterly shocked me to hear that because I had no idea that there were actually laws around this. So as they sought to buy a house, they had to get a loan. They had to have a white friend kind of co-sign a loan because it was so difficult for them to be considered by a bank. And it just caught me thinking about, oh my gosh, uh, San Francisco has had these issues in this community, excluding people from things like home ownership. And this only went away in the mid-60s. I
0: had no idea. Yeah. I mean, we tend to think of systemic racism as almost a regional issue. You know, people like to talk about Jim Crow or the Southeast. But the truth is, these things totally were around in San Francisco And systemic racism is alive and well in San Francisco today. I think you and I would agree on that.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, what was shocking was, okay, if San Francisco is this very progressive place, and they only dealt with this in the 50s and 60s, people just generally went along with the exclusion and the marginalization of people of color because you had this same redlining in Bayview-Hunters Point, which is where the vast majority of African Americans lived So if you don't say anything, you just go along with this. You're just kind of supporting the system. So, I mean, we can talk about individual microaggressions and racist behavior, but systemic and corporate issues really impact communities. And I think that's what a great deal of the protests are about right now, talking about the uh, actions of the police and how they police people of color.
0: There's much more discussion today, I think, than ever before about going along with Really, you're talking about being complicit. The idea that that is also a part of the problem is relatively new. In the 90s, when I was growing up, racism was seen as like a behavioral thing or a conscious action. Now we have all of these terms and ideas to express racism that's much more subtle, more society-wide.
1: And, you know, some people are not going to be tracking with us, feeling like, wait a second, are you saying, although I haven't done anything Racial, or I'm not excluding people from their homes, that somehow I have a responsibility to this. I think it's hard for us to get our hands around.
0: The question becomes, okay, so what do you want me to do about that? And I think that's a fair question. Hopefully, it's one that we'll get to by the end of the podcast. To be clear, we're not trying to heap guilt. We have no fingers to point. Iron and I see ourselves as a part of these systems also and understand that we also bear the guilt common to all humanity here. And that's exactly why we want to talk about these things from a Christian perspective. So let's start there. I've read a lot in the last week or so, but what does the Bible have to add to this discussion, Iron? That question is core.
1: The Bible actually has a lot to say about corporate sin, especially around race. I mean, you look at Paul's letters, Ephesians, Galatians, it's all about race. How can the many different cultures actually live together as one in the church? Even in the early stages of the church, you go to Acts 6, when a diaconate is finally created, we're told that a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So the church had a system of caring for widows, and somehow the Greek-speaking women were being overlooked, and the Hebrew women weren't. There was a racial component in all this, so the church has been dealing with this and addressing this for thousands of years. The Bible actually has a whole lot to say about this, because I don't think anybody was excluding Hellenistic women on purpose, but there was something set up in such a way that somehow they got overlooked, and the church decided to address it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I like that the scripture uses that term, neglected because it's a really passive verb. It's not saying that they were persecuted, they were neglected, which is another more subtle form of oppression. So I see exactly why you're pulling that sample. What do you take from that?
1: I mean, there's something corporate going on here, right? It's larger than one person. It's not an individual act. But what's beautiful about what happens in Act 6 is the church gets together and says, oh, yeah, this is not right. We're going to address this. So they set up all these systems. They get more leaders who have Hellenistic names who become the first deacons of the church to make sure people are cared for. They begin to address this. So there's a corporate aspect and a responsibility we have to care for one another well. And that also means we bear corporate guilt if we fail to do this. And that's pretty hard for us to hear.
0: And I like this case study of the Hellenist widows because... You're talking about corporate guilt, but you're also talking about corporate repentance, right? Once the sin was named, people got together, they included Hellenist leadership in their body so that they could spot the problem more easily moving forward. They worked to address it. It's really a story of hope and redemption of God working in people's hearts collectively to address an issue. And I think that's exactly what we're praying for in America, in the church right now. Yes, yes,
1: absolutely. I mean, part of what has to happen and what took place in Act 6 is the racial and cultural differences were recognized. I mean, they didn't deny it. They didn't say it did not exist. Because sometimes when we do that, we overlook some of the hurt or the neglect. It's one thing for us to say, hey, it exists out there. But to recognize it's a part of our system has to be the beginning of it. It's pretty important.
0: Mm, cultural and racial differences can't be ignored. They have to be dealt with. It's one thing to say that there's no Jew or Gentile in the kingdom, but I don't think that the Bible is ever saying that being a Jew or a Gentile doesn't impact your experience here on earth. That's a cop-out. Like, oh, there's no black or white in the kingdom. Yeah, but being black or white is going to have a big impact on how you experience the kingdom as represented in the church. Being Asian is too. Being Latino is too.
1: Absolutely. And there's that passage that's often quoted about every tongue, tribe, and nation in the new heavens and the new earth getting together and worshiping Jesus. It's not as though those distinctions are somehow gone and dissolved. Those things still exist. But in this life, it's challenging to live as people who have different cultural backgrounds, different races, and ethnicities.
0: And it's not like God is ever saying, I don't see race any more than he says, I don't see orphans, I don't see widows, I don't see the poor. If anything, he's saying, I see the poor, I see the oppressed, I see the marginalized. And I think that's a great place for us to start, too. So what do we see when we start to look at racial oppression in the church? What are the things that might come to the eye, Iron? Well, I think
1: it's easy for us to jump to all the problems, and there are challenges because whenever you have people from different backgrounds and cultures come together, there's just a lot of missing each other because we're misunderstanding. But we have to also recognize that racial differences are an immense blessing to the church because hearing from others who have an ability to see and connect to God in their unique way because of their race and ethnicity— allows us to see the fullness of God and all of the implications of the gospel. I've learned a lot from those who grew up in the South, in the PCA. I did not grow up in the PCA. And then when I have those conversations with those brothers and sisters, it's like, wow, I've actually not thought of what you mentioned. We really need each other. And that's really enriched my understanding of the gospel. That's one thing I would say.
0: And I can speak to that too, in my experience at Grace. While this podcast is meant to respond to the current moment, it's not that this is the first time we've talked about race on staff, by no means. It's also not the first time that we've talked about race as a church. I was really moved last year by a meeting we had for our ministry leaders, people who are actively leading ministries at Grace, where different people served on a panel and talked about their experiences racially and ethnically as part of our church community. It was incredible. And people are still talking about that a year or two later because the range of experiences was so remarkable. And there was just so much learning to be had in those short and very personal narratives that people shared. So we're excited to be doing more of that here at Grace moving forward and really carry on the work that's already begun here. Iron, I have a question for you. If I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about corporate responsibility, I mean, that's a term you're circling around over and over in your answers. My first thought, honestly, is, okay, so how am I responsible for that exactly? I didn't personally or intentionally do this, so what am I supposed to do about it? Is that what you're saying, that I'm responsible for something I didn't personally do?
1: Yes, that would be the (laughs) answer of the Bible, and I'll tell you why. You know, in my prayer reading this morning, I came across Joshua 7, which is the story of Achan. This is after the Israelites entered Jericho, miraculously, and God tells the people, whatever you do, don't take any of the plunder from the city, and God forbids it. But Achan, you know, he's a greedy dude. He takes all this stuff, hides it under his tent, and then he gets discovered because the Israelites go out to battle, and they lose, and God says, someone stole and took the plunder. Basically, the short of it is because of his sin, the whole nation is defeated in battle, And his whole family is stoned to death. Whoa, wait a second. Aiken is the one who stole. What does this have to do with his whole family? Why did his whole family have to be put to death? You know what I'm saying? It just feels like, wait, something is just off here.
0: Oh, I totally understand because the first time I read that story in Joshua 7, I was appalled. It seemed totally unfair to me that like your dumb kid brother does something that God commanded against and now all of you are stoned to death or your whole community suffers. I don't love that story, Iron. I'm going to be honest with you. What am I supposed to take from it?
1: I think part of what's hard about the story for us who grew up in the Western world, in places that have a post-Enlightenment understanding of the individual being the highest category of existence. Our mindset is set on, hey, I get to choose who I am. All of my individual choices make me who I am.
0: The captain of my fate, the master of my soul, Invictus, classic of Western lit.
1: Right. And those are the ways we think about ourselves. But for most of the world, they read the story and they say, oh, yeah, of course, I understand that. Because your identity is not just tied to you, yourself, what you do for your job, what you choose to do. They understand there's a corporate piece to all of this. Our family and our nation bears responsibility. Why? Because they were meant to keep you from becoming the thing that Aiken became, right? So your family participates in the guilt. This is how people think about it. Oftentimes, you'll hear people say, oh, you brought shame on your family, because they understand the responsibility and guilt is collective.
0: Mm, So you're saying that the guilt is shared because everyone had a hand in producing that character in the person. Is that a fair snapshot of what you're saying?
1: Yes, and they understand each other is so tied together. You can't just say, I'm a separate person from all of this, and who I am is separate from my family.
0: And our Western notion of this is considerably less developed. I think I agree with you. But you know where we do see it and where we do intuitively understand this is on the therapist's couch. Because how many Westerners spend so much money and time, and God bless them, they should, trying to figure out the ways that their parents and grandparents impacted them. And this is something the Bible anticipates, right? The sins of the father are visited upon the third and fourth generations. So that might help us all access this collectivist mindset that is so key to understanding systemic racism and corporate sin here in America today.
1: Right, right. And I think, you know, most people around the world understand you're a product of your family and your culture. All of those things are intertwined. And so Joshua 7 is saying there is a corporate responsibility for the family. And it's not all negative because sometimes that's a positive thing, right? Good things come from a family or a community and you can also take credit for it.
0: Uh, (laughs) I like this part better, Iron. Uh,
1: There's there's lots of good things that can come from being a part of a family or a community. Do you remember a couple years ago when crazy rich Asians came out in the movie theater and every Uh, Asian person was like, Have you watched Crazy Rich Asian? They were so proud.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes, I remember because I saw it with your wife who alternated between pointing out Iron, I'm ashamed to say it, but attractive men on screen. I love Grace Kim. And then like weeping profusely every five minutes, she was having a different emotional reaction. And I loved it. It was my favorite movie I've seen in theaters with the best company in a long time. It's true. Everybody was super proud of that film, I think, especially there was like a local connection, right? Oh, kind of fun trivia.
1: Yeah, I mean, the director of the movie, his family owns the Chinese restaurant that's at the corner of Arrasadero and El Camino. I think it's Chef Chu. I think that's the one. Chef Chu's. Yeah, yeah
0: I, I think that's right. And so every time I've been there, too, it's like, oh, even as a person from Palo Alto, I get to have a little slice of this, even as a white person.
1: It was a big deal, right? And for the Asian American community, it was like a shared success. Our people have a successful movie that features Asian American actors. And, you know, Abby, I've probably asked you this question before, but have you read the book Pachinko?
0: Oh, my gosh. So Charlotte Kim, Iron's daughter and I can look at each other and just say, have you read Pachanko? And both of us burst out laughing because there was a month of Iron Kim's life where every time I saw him, he'd be talking about something super unrelated, like my expense reports, and then be like, oh, by the way, Abby, have you read Pachanko? It's a great book. 25, (laughs) 30 times. What was going on with you in that book, Iron?
1: Oh, this is just fun stuff. But you know, the author Min Jin Lee is a Korean American. And I'm telling you, I was so proud as a Korean American, because here's someone who's put out a really high quality novel that somehow brought, I don't know, for me, the sense of real pride that someone in my ethnic group has succeeded in this way, in a artistic way as an author. And that I just kept talking about it, probably to the point that it annoyed some people in my family,
0: some hypothetical people in your family and workspaces. So (laughs) big message here. Sometimes corporate responsibility brings credit. Sometimes it brings shame. Iron, I have a joke for you. Why did the Israelites all have to take Tylenol?
1: I have no idea
0: because they were all aching, get it? (laughs) That joke has layers. A lot of corporate responsibility implied in the punchline. So, you know, one person can make us all ache. That's Mm. very
1: true. Very true. Very true. But, you know, it's not just corporate responsibility. Because you start thinking about um, just the nature of salvation. And this has a huge corporate piece, because in Romans 5, Paul says something incredibly shocking that we are actually responsible for every single person and condemned for what our first parents, Adam and Eve did. And he tells us you're responsible for something you did not do. You're guilty just for being a human being. That, that is a mind blowing statement he makes.
0: Yeah, I've never totally understood that. So I think it's good to unpack it. There's other verses that say things like you were born into sin or, oh, Psalms, right? In iniquity, my mother conceived me. Mm. Do I have that right? Yeah. And that's hard for me, too, because honestly, when I hold a baby, I'm like, I don't know, doesn't look like a sinner to me. Pretty cute. So what theologically is even going on here?
1: Theologically, the technical term is imputation of sin. Sin is passed to us before we even act. We sin because we are sinners, not because we start off as a blank slate and somehow our first sin makes us sinners. So Paul is saying, and this is why it's so important that he says, you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His point is, look, before you even sinned, before you even committed your first sin, you were already guilty. And the way that works is because of your corporate connection to Adam and Eve.
0: Yeah, I don't know, Iron. People call the Bible the good news. This sounds like bad news to me.
1: Well, you got to have that bad news because then Paul brings in the good news, which is the connection to Jesus, right? Think about how salvation works. You can be saved not because what you have done, right? But because of something someone else has done Jesus, and you receive all of the benefits of that by faith in him. The whole structure of the gospel is based on this corporate connection and intertwinedness of relationship. So if you want to say, I'm only responsible for what I've done, and that's the only way you're going to define sin, then you're in trouble. Then you have to go fix yourself. But the gospel is saying, well, you can't fix yourself because some of the sins have been a part of who you are even before, and in the same way, you are saved, not by what you did but because you are connected to someone else, and that's Jesus.
0: To say nothing of the fact that that argument rests on the notion that we are capable of perceiving our individual sin. So I understand what you're saying. Like, if you're going to say it's all about individual responsibility, very Western perspective, then fine, you can talk about individual sin, but you certainly then also have to deal with the fact that you're incapable of individual salvation. I see what you're building here.
1: Yeah, so I think this is why it's so important to understand at the heart of salvation. You need to see it doesn't come to us just by what we do. It's not something we earn. It comes through our union with Jesus. It's corporate and mediated. It's at the heart of the theology of the Bible. What it says about us, about the human race, how sin happens, how salvation happens, it is corporate. And because of our Western individualism, we have a hard time actually understanding and seeing this.
0: It makes sense then, too, why so much of the biblical language around salvation rests on the language of family, right? It's not about individual redemption, totally. It's also about kind of a community redemption or a kingdom building or a new nation. There's so much talk about this that we can totally blow by if we're being too individualistic. So I get the corporate thing. We're all in this together. The sins of our community are also the sins of the individual. The sins of the individual are the sins of our community. But what does corporate guilt or corporate sin actually look like in our world today? What are some of the practical ways that we see this theological truth playing out?
1: Well, Abby, I think systemic injustice, racial injustice, we have to recognize sinful condition Of ourselves impacts and shapes the system we live in and inhabit, and that makes the world happen, right? So, things like housing, education, those are two areas we've talked a lot about in the past. Whether one gets a job or not, gets a loan at the bank, how a criminal is dealt with or a potential criminal, all of those things, these systems are impacted by sin. So, let's begin there. What is really, really hard about this is when systems exclude and marginalize people on the basis of race, even though most of these individuals in the system are not intentionally trying to do it, it is still happening.
0: There's an interplay between the role of the individual, the system of racism that that role creates sort of society-wide, and then how that system is experienced by a given individual. So I hear what you're saying. Individuals aren't usually intentionally trying to contribute to oppressive systems, but we're a part of the system.
1: And that's how the Bible often talks about oppression of the poor. It is referring sometimes to individuals who take advantage of the poor or oppress people racially. Like you yourself can oppress the poor. But sometimes it's referring to not just individuals, but an unjust system that has developed over time that is keeping justice from taking place in someone's life. And God is saying, no, no, no. Those things need to be dismantled and made to look more and more like my character
0: proverbs thirteen twenty three an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away it's not that anybody cares if the poor take from an unplowed field; they're just trying to make it, but there are systems of injustice that are apersonal that are not attributable to any one individual that sweep it away. But yeah, I think you're right. The Bible is talking about systemic injustice many a time, so then as a pastor, how have you seen this play out in the church?
1: You know, the, the first ministry I did during seminary and post was in Philadelphia in the early 90s. And I was in an immigrant church, a Korean-American church that was a mix of professionals. And a pretty large segment of the church had small businesses in Philadelphia. And in the early 90s, there were a lot of racial tensions between Korean business owners and the African-American community. You can think back to Rodney King, L.A. riots. All of that is the background of what was taking place here. And there was a tragedy in our church where we had two members shot and killed at their businesses by African-Americans in inner city Philadelphia. It was just a terrible and tragic time. Um, Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I am so sorry.
1: Yeah, uh, it, was, it was one of those horrific moments of racial tension being experienced in a, in a really traumatic way in the community because violence had rung out in so many ways. And watching the reactions of the people in the church, I begin to understand something. The Korean American business owners were saying, you know what? We're not racist people. We are being accused of discrimination against African Americans, marginalizing them, seeing them as dangerous They can't come into our stores. That's what they were saying, okay? And I remember we had this meeting at the church. It was like a Wednesday night uh, worship or prayer meeting or something. And there was a discussion about how the church needs to respond. The leaders in the church, the pastors and elders, wanted to go the route of strengthening our relationship with other African-American churches we already had relationships with. They wanted to seek understanding and let the gospel bring healing to this racial divide. And there was one deacon who got up and he was really angry about this. And he was saying, you know, African-Americans were stealing from our stores. They're violent. They murdered two people from our church. We're just trying to make a living. We have to deal with racial insults being looked down on every single day. And now you want us to go and do this thing with the African-American church obviously he was saying a lot of this out of a place of hurt. He saw himself just as a victim only. A lot of the Korean American store owners didn't see they were also part of a system. They made their money in the African American community. Some people had this glass uh, set up so that you could protect yourself, but it made the African Americans who came into the store like, hey, you see us as dangerous. They weren't involved in the community. They weren't given back. They took the money they earned and moved out to the suburbs. So it was a lot of tension and a lot of mistrust. And my point in all of this, Abby, is the Korean American community, as much as they were victims, they were also part of the system. And until they started understanding this and recognizing their place and hearing from the African American community and building bridges, that healing was not going to happen.
0: Man, I mean, that's quite the case study. And it's super complicated because I usually think of Korean American shop owners as like the victims. And it's weird to think that some of these people are wearing both hats, right? So yes. was there meaningful heart change in the end? What happened?
1: Anything related to systemic change is not going to show up in a day or two or a week or two or a month or two. It's never going to be fully resolved. But what the church has to do is continue the work of being the church, building bridges, wrestling through these questions, saying, hey, how do I look at my own self and recognize what I have contributed to this reality? Why is there so much brokenness in this relationship? These things aren't going to get fixed overnight, but it's about long-term engagement and process and prayer And you just can't do this one little thing and say, okay, we're done and we fixed it. This is the hard part about systemic issues. And what the church did was continue on this journey. And they knew this was going to take a long time. Even after I left to go off to grad school, they were continuing to work at this.
0: I mean, life isn't like a 90s sitcom episode, right? Where there's like a very special message at the end and then everything's resolved. This stuff isn't fully resolved till the end, and we know that because the stuff that Paul was writing about 2,000 years ago, that is still the stuff that the church is piecing through today. At the same time, though, I don't want to just say like, oh, this will all be fixed in heaven, and there's really nothing we can do until Jesus returns to fix it. He's fixing it in our hearts right now, day by day. The kingdom is already coming, and indeed is already here. So how do you hope to see the kingdom coming in our church in terms of racial reconciliation, Iron?
1: I would say part of growing spiritually involves recognizing God's call to build his kingdom. And one aspect of that is addressing corporate, systemic, racial injustice, recognizing, hey, these things exist. How can the church be praying and individually being engaged to say, no, these are things we actually need to be involved in, in a way that is not just activistic, but actually brings in gospel values and hope. I think about the way the black churches really were at the center of the civil rights movement. Anyone who studies the civil rights movement cannot ignore the role of the church in the black community because they were the ones that were saying, hey, the dignity we have received from Jesus allows us to recognize what's wrong in the world. And the church really took the lead in the civil rights movement the gospel really propel that movement forward. Maybe some people are are even going to be offended by me saying that, but that is just the truth. It's just a fact.
0: And you think, too, about the role of Christians in the abolitionist movement, both in the United States and in the United Kingdom. The church really had a role in bringing God's kingdom to earth in this way.
1: We have to grow to recognize Hey, I can't just worry only about my individual spiritual change, but we have to actually look at what is taking place in the world and ask the question, what is not right about the world we live in? And in what ways does it not reflect God's character?
0: So, Iron, what is it about the message of the gospel that you think made it so integral to the civil rights movement? How are these things compatible or where's the shared ground?
1: Well, I think it's in really the recognition of being made in the image of God. There is dignity here, right? And systems have somehow developed where it's harder for some people to experience the fullness of life here in whatever capacity, whether it's in jobs or education or housing or in policing. We have to recognize that our corporate responsibility is real. We can't just say, hey, I didn't commit any racist offense today, so I'm all good. But we begin to lament for what is taking place in the world, acknowledge that it's there, don't rush over it, but say, hey, I need to listen to the experiences and the hardships, the pains and tears of this community over here and say, how does this interact and intersect with who God is and what he cares about?
0: Because in Christ, we have the freedom to fully acknowledge our sins because we know that they've been paid for. They are covered and they will be made right. That the blood on our hands is covered by the blood of Jesus. So really, if anyone should be empowered to acknowledge their own racism, it really should be the church. It should be Christians because we have this amazing opportunity for repentance that humankind has never known before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if we're a family, you know, we're all adopted into the family of God we begin to feel each other's pain. That's why I think the lament part's important. And as we recognize what we can do, I'd say what one aspect of systemic racial injustice can you name? Like figure it out, think about it, pray for it, consider how you yourself can address it. And maybe that's another place for us to consider, hey, this is how God could be using us.
0: I think that's a great takeaway from this talk. You can't solve all things for all time, right? We're only mortal. We're only flesh. But what is one thing that you can name and put on your own heart, something that's important to you about systemic racial injustice? And then how might God be empowering you to meet that need in the world around you or to repent for the ways that you're complicit in creating that structure? I think that's great, Iron. The other thing I wanted to ask you is people have been sharing a ton of resources the last couple of weeks. I mean, these reading lists are a mile long. There's so many authors being shared that maybe didn't get as much attention before. What are your, I don't know, couple of picks? What would you recommend to people?
1: You know, one book I enjoyed a couple of years ago was um, Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson. I know it's gotten a lot of press because the movie came out, but I think if you want to kind of understand systemic racism or systemic ways that race actually plays a role in injustice, it's just a great read because these are real cases. The other one you may want to look at, and I'm going to do a, probably a book group on this book. David Jones mentioned it in his sermon uh, prior week, which is One Blood by John Perkins. So that may be another one you may want to take a look at. Those are two that just come to the top of my head right now.
0: And John Perkins is an African-American pastor, is that correct?
1: African-American, very involved during the civil rights movement, and has done a tremendous amount of reconciliation ministry.
0: So if you're looking for somewhere to start, those might be two places to consider. Iron, I'm glad we can talk about this together openly and honestly. I also would like to add for our listeners, of course, we have limitations in perspective. Of course, we have our own implicit biases. And some of those maybe have been exposed on the podcast today. I don't know. You're like a 75-year-old Korean-American. I'm like a vibrant 20-something Southern white American. You know, we have limits, Iron. Would you agree?
1: Oh, yeah. I approach this podcast with much fear and trepidation, Abby, for all the reasons you said.
0: Yep iron's only 50 folks don't let me deceive you all right grace prez well this was a great start to our conversation on race we hope to keep talking with you reach out if you like we'd love to hear from you and we will talk more soon have a good day iron
1: bye abby